Well, let's take the Word of God this morning and turn, if you would, with me to the book of Acts in chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, as we turn there, you might think, well, how long are we going to spend in Acts chapter 7? And I've tried to uh, point out some things that uh, Stephen points out in this sermon. Uh, this is a very important sermon for us for many reasons. It's the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. It's the first sermon that produced a martyr. And by the way, this sermon was not preached by an apostle. Not by the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. It was preached by a deacon in the church. And uh, Stephen preaches a tremendous message here. He is standing before the Sanhedrin council. And they brought some false accusers and they said, He is speaking blasphemous words against Moses, against God, against the law, against this holy place, which was the temple. And... Uh, the chief priest is allowing Stephen to give an answer. He says, are these things so? And Stephen is going to basically, from verse 2 all the way down to verse 53, preach what I would call a powerful message. And we've been spending some time looking at what Stephen is, is getting at and the point that he's making the truth that he's communicating. And his audience is not the typical audience that we would see in the church. He is preaching to the Sanhedrin council to the first and the strongest enemies of the gospel message. As a matter of fact, Stephen is going to die at the end. They're going to drive him out of the city like uh, petulant little children. They're going to gnash on their teeth. They're going to put their hands over their ears and they're going to rush him and they're going to stone him and he's going to see the Lord and the Bible says he's going to fall asleep. The grace of God was with him in those final moments. But I want us to... Um, as we looked throughout this sermon, we asked ourselves a number of questions that I sought to answer. And that is, where did those men go wrong? Those men who are part of the Sanhedrin Council, where did they go wrong? And in the book of Acts, we find here in chapter 7, first of all, that he uses the example of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, but particularly with Moses, he shows them that as it was in their forefathers that dealt with Moses, that they understood not in the Old Testament how God was going to deliver them through Moses. That's what he, he said. They also refused God's deliver in Moses. That's what Stephen tells us. And also we know that they would not obey God's message through Moses according to verse 39. And so there's three things that uh, Stephen says. They did not understand. They refused God's deliver and they refused God's message. And he shows them that that's exactly what they were doing. They did not understand who Jesus was. Nor uh, they also refused God's deliver in Christ. And they refused or they would not obey God's message uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we dealt with another question is, Why? Why does men go astray? Where did they go wrong? Why did they go wrong? And we see that Stephen points out some important truths. First of all, because of the wickedness of their heart. That's what he says. Just like our forefathers, in their heart they turned. But also we see because of the raging passions of the flesh. Man in his natural state does not want to live by faith. He wants to live in the moment to satisfy the passions and the longings and the lust of the flesh. And he points out also that the pride of rejoicing in their own works caused them to go astray. And then we asked ourselves this question, how then did God respond? And we see that God did three things according to verse 42 and 43. God turned, God gave them up to more sin, and at the end of verse 43, we find that God carried them away into captivity by the Babylonians. And we see that happening. This is how God always deals with sin. And I made the conclusion that that is how God dealt with sin on the cross. God, when He saw the Lord Jesus Christ, He also turned from sin. That's why Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we see the work of God on the cross and He's dealing with sin. But there is yet one more aspect in this message that I would like to consider. And that is, where did that leave them? 
Well, what, what happened when God turned, gave them up? Where did that leave them? In other words, as Stephen is preaching to the Sanhedrin council, how did they get there? Those who were listening to Stephen's preaching here, where did all this leave them? This, uh, these men, by the way, did not deny the scriptures. They memorized the scriptures. Uh, these men did not deny Jehovah God. They believed in the God of the Bible. And furthermore, these men did not deny what Stephen was saying here. They did not deny Moses. They did not deny Joseph, nor did they deny Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham. But yet, they seem to be in this strange state. They are unconverted. They are breaking the law by trying this man and eventually killing him without justification. So where does that leave him? Let's pick it up in verse 42 of Acts chapter 7. Then God turned, and remember God turned when man in his heart turned from God, and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and of the star of your god Rephan, Figures which he made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? There is one more point of emphasis that Stephen makes at the close of this wonderful sermon. Stephen brings up the tabernacle. Now if you remember, one of the false accusations, if we go back to Acts chapter 6 and verse 13, you remember what the false witnesses said. Verse 13, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. This is one of the false accusations that Stephen was, or was speaking blasphemous words against the temple. And Stephen now, as he closes the sermon, he's going to show where does all of that happen throughout the history of Israel how did they get to where they are? Where does that leave them? In what state are they? And it, by ending this sermon, he's going to bring up the tabernacle. For example, notice in verse uh, 43, uh, verse 44, excuse me, he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness. So he brings up the tabernacle. He goes on in verse 45 which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles. Notice, what did they bring in with them? He's talking about the tabernacle. The tabernacle of witness was brought in with them. Verse 45 uh, and uh, 46. Who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. He speaks at the end of verse 45 of David. Remember David, he says, I dwell here in this palace, but... God dwells in tents. And so David wanted to build a house for the Lord, which is called the temple. We know that David did not build the temple. Solomon did, according to verse 47. But Solomon built him a house. And notice verse 48. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. And so here Stephen is going to end his sermon with a, a history, if you would, of the Old Testament tabernacle that 
God told Moses to institute during the wilderness wanderings, and how we got to the place now where the nation of Israel is worshiping in this temple that was in the heart of David to build and that eventually Solomon built, and now today that they were all standing in. You see, as Stephen is preaching this sermon to the Sanhedrin council, the courtroom of the Sanhedrin was located in the temple at Jerusalem. So Stephen is preaching this message and he is going to end with the place where they're standing and he's trying to make a point to them. They had accused Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against this holy place, namely the temple. And uh, Stephen is going to show them what's happened and where they stand now. And so I would like to preach a message that I've entitled this morning, Empty Religion. Empty Religion. This is where they were. As Stephen is preaching to the Sanhedrin Council, to people, by the way, who believed in the God of the Bible... Uh, to people who had memorized most of them, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy, people who were familiar with the patriarchs, as in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and so on, who were familiar with the covenants of God, who were familiar with the law, and they had committed, many of them, a lifetime pursuit of knowledge of the Scriptures. And yet here they're all standing accusing Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against the temple. And what Stephen is going to show them in the end is that they are part of an empty religion. Now, we're going to look at each one of those verses and then I'll make my points in the end. But notice what he says after God turned in verse 42. He says, then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven... As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness. Now although the tabernacle is first mentioned in verse 44, we know that the place that they offered their sacrifices during the wilderness wanderings was in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was instituted... When God told Moses how the tabernacle was to be built, all the elements that need to be, how it needed to be furnished, and furthermore, how the priest was to conduct his service in the tabernacle. And so the first mention that he makes is that they <coughs> had offered slain beasts and sacrifices <coughs> for 40 years. But there's a problem. Because as we look at verse 42, Stephen is quoting from an Old Testament prophet by the name of Amos. If we go to the book of Amos in the Old Testament, turn in your Old Testament to the book of Amos, I want us to look at the quote. <coughs> Amos is right before the book of Obadiah, right after the book of Joel. If you're trying to locate that book in your Bible. And in the book of Amos, in chapter 5, uh, notice here as the prophet is preaching to the Jews, he says in Amos chapter 5, let's pick it up in verse 21. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast days, I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. God is speaking to the prophet Amos, and he's saying... I hate, I despise your feast days. In other words, the observances that they were doing. Verse 22. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offering of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. For I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. 
Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? Verse 26. But ye have borne <coughs> the tabernacle of Moloch <coughs> excuse me, and Jehun your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Amos is documented in preaching to the condition of Israel hundreds of years after the wilderness wanderings. And Amos says, you're offering sacrifices, but I hate them. You're singing my praise, but I'm not listening. And indeed Amos says, it's just like the 40-year wilderness wanderings, and he asked the question... Were you offering sacrifices then? That's exactly what Stephen says. <clears throat> he says, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? And here is the technicality. If we look back during the wilderness wanderings and we look at Israel, do we say and we look at what happened, were they offering sacrifices? Yes. But God says, were you? Now what's the question about? The question is this. You were going through the motions of offering the sacrifices, but were you really offering sacrifices? In other words, what he is saying here by the mouth of Amos, as Stephen is preaching, he says you have a bunch of rituals, and you offer sacrifices, you abide by the same system that your fathers did in the wilderness but are you really offering sacrifices what Stephen is showing them is that they weren't they were going through the motions but they were not really offering sacrifices <coughs> if we go to verse 44 of Acts 7 He says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. We could go back as early as Exodus chapter 25 when we see that the Bible says, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, and then he goes on and he institute the tabernacle. Not only how the tabernacle was supposed to be laid out, uh, what would be furnished uh, in the tabernacle, where the sacrifices was to be offered, the division between the holy place and the holy of holies, and also the institution of the service in the priest, the daily, if you would, service of the priest in the tabernacle. And we read by Exodus 38.21, the Bible says, This is the sum of the tabernacle, even of the tabernacle of testimony, as it was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithmar, son of Aaron, the priest. And so it is interesting that as Stephen is referring back to the tabernacle, he refers it to the tabernacle of witness. When the tabernacle was completed under the leadership of Moses and the direction of God, it is called the tabernacle of testimony. In other words, what was the tabernacle all about? It was about a witness. In other words, the tabernacle was witnessing something. The tabernacle, furthermore, was a testimony of God to the children of Israel. We could go in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 5. The Bible says, Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, <clears throat> that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. And here in the book of Hebrews says, all those things were to be a shadow of that which is to come. <clears throat> and so the tabernacle would be a tabernacle of witness, instituted by Moses, commanded by God, and Moses did exactly what God had commanded him to do. 
And then we go to verse 45 of Acts chapter 7. <clears throat> the tabernacle during the wilderness wanderings went on into the promised land. Notice verse 45. Which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus. Now, <clears throat> Jesus is the same, is equivalent for the Old Testament name Joshua. It's the same name. If you would translate the name Joshua in the New Testament, it would be Jesus. And, and so here he's talking about Joshua. Notice they brought into the possession the tabernacle with them. And God drave out all the heathens. And then eventually God uh, set up David as the king of Israel. And David decided to, or had a desire to build a house for God. But we know what God says. God said that He would not allow David to build this house, but rather, because David was a man of war, but He would allow His son Solomon to build him a house, and then Solomon built this house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, verse 48, as saith the prophets. You see, Solomon built the house that David had desired to build for the Lord, and I want to make this point here is that God had not commanded for David or for Solomon to build the temple. He had not. Like he had previously commanded Moses to build the tabernacle. As a matter of fact, God says himself in the Old Testament that he had not asked David, nor had he asked Solomon to build the temple, but yet they saw fit in themselves to build what I would refer to as a permanent residency for God. Now that would be different than the tabernacle. Why? Because the Old Testament tabernacle was always moved. And if you study the tabernacle in the Old Testament during the wilderness wanderings, every time they moved, they would pack up all their tents. They would first set up the tabernacle that would stand at the center of the camp. And then all the tribes would be divided encircling the tabernacle. And each one pitched their tent towards the tabernacle. In other words, the tabernacle uh, was always the central location, the place where all the tents looked to uh, during the camp. But that, that was always moved. They went from one place to another place. And under the leadership of David and Solomon, a permanent if you would, unmovable place was built where God was to dwell. <clears throat> Why does he go through all that history? Well, I believe he goes through this history to show us that Israel had become very religious, but that their religion was empty. Just like the 40-year wilderness wanderings where they were offering sacrifices, but they were really not offering sacrifices. Where they were participating in many of the rituals of the temple, but it was not from their hearts. Their religion had become empty. As a matter of fact, if we go to the book of First Kings, if you turn with me to the book of First Kings chapter 8, in the Old Testament, First Kings chapter 8, Notice with me, <clears throat> verse 25, 1 Kings eight twenty-five. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, <clears throat> keep with thy servant David my father, that thou promisest him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified which thou spakest unto thy servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. Solomon, as he completes the temple... He's going to say something that is very important, that by the time we see Stephen preaching to the Sanhedrin council, they had forgotten, that's why he reminds him of that. And he says, you remember Solomon, after the completion of the temple, he made us all aware that the temple 
would not limit or contain God. Indeed, this permanent temple that Solomon built would not be a permanent dwelling place for God. Why? Because God is beyond the temple. God does not dwell in the temple made with hands. The prophet Isaiah said the same thing in Isaiah chapter 66. And so, we go, if you go, if you're in first, if you go with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. As we think about this temple, 2 Kings chapter 17. What happened to Israel? 2 Kings chapter 17. And notice with me if we go down to verse 39. 2 Kings 17, 39. The Bible says, But the Lord your God ye shall fear, and ye shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Howbeit, they did not hearken, but they did after their former manner. So, these nations fear the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. Did you catch that? They fear the Lord and served their graven images. Both their children, their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. It is interesting, in other words, there was a fear of God and a, and a knowledge of God. But they didn't truly worship Him. What, what happened? As we come to the New Testament during the time of Christ, Jesus Christ and the uh, first century apostles all were, always were in great conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day. And the message that they all have is consistent, whether it was John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, or the first century apostles. The really point that they made is that they had arrived at an empty religion. They were doing the rituals. They were keeping what was instituted in the uh, traditions and what was to be done in the temple and the sacrifices. But the point, as we see in the Old Testament, is that they were offering sacrifices, but they were really not offering sacrifices. And so, in other words, their religion, where does that leave them? It left them with empty religion. As we look in our world, we would not say that our world is irreligious. As a matter of fact, the majority of people are part of some form of religion, but it is not the Bible Christianity, and therefore it is empty religion. And so what I would like to do this morning, and I know I spent a lot of time, but this will be really short this part, is I want us to, to consider the characteristics of empty religion. What is empty religion? Well, first of all, if you want to write it down, empty religion is demonstrated by an outward show without a sincere heart. Empty religion is demonstrated by an outward show without a sincere heart. As we go back in the book of Luke, if you turn with me to the book of Luke in chapter 18, again, Jesus Christ spent a great deal of time talking, debating with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers. And Jesus Christ uh, communicated the general attitude of those religious people. Notice what he says, Luke 18. He describes verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And sometimes some people who do not understand the Bible and who do not understand the times in which Jesus Christ lived, they have this idea that, ah, the Pharisee, he was lying. No, he was not. He was not lying in the fact that he was tithing. He was not lying in the fact that they observed in every respect the law of God. Isn't that what Paul said? 
He was of the tribe of Benjamin. As a Jew, he was the chief of Jews. He was a Pharisee. Concerning the law, he says he was blameless. What does that mean? That in every point, he had an outward show of the law in that he would rejoice in that. He would say, hey, look at me, my observance of the law. Look at all that I do. I do this over here, and I give tithe, and I give to the poor. And (coughs) he says here, and I'm not like this publican over here. He says, verse 13, And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice the publican doesn't say, list all of his sins. He says, I am a sinner. That is what I am by nature. But the Pharisee would refuse that. You see, the Pharisees were not liars in their religion. But their religion was empty. They did all that even the Old Testament had commanded it to do. And they thought that somehow that would give them uh, uh, to attain to righteousness. But it did not. If you go with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark in chapter 12. Notice with me in verse 30. Mark 12, 30. A scribe comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and he asks him, What is the greatest commandment of all? Jesus answered him in verse 29, The first and of all the commandments is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Heart. That's the first commandment. Not outward show of religion. The scribe was waiting. What is the greatest thing I can do? What is the greatest thing that I can be recognized for? And Jesus said, the greatest thing you can do is not what man can see. It's something that needs to be in your heart. We could go to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, just a few chapters before that in Mark chapter 7 and verse 6. Well, look at verse 5, the verse before. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? This is the, the typical perspective of empty religion. Complaining, well, why don't you do this? And why do you do this? Verse 6, he answered and said unto him, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but in their heart, but their heart is far from me. What was the problem with the Pharisee? It was not what they said. It was not the things that they did. It was that their religion was empty. All of the outward show, but their heart was far removed from God, so far removed from God. You see, the, the Sanhedrin councils and the Jews of that day, they had this idea, as we see in 1 Kings, when they, they were coming and God says, you're offering sacrifices, you're singing my praises, but I'm not hearing, I'm not, as a matter of fact, I hate your sacrifices. In other words, you're, I hate your religion. Why? Because it's empty. There, there's nothing there, there's nothing... Genuine. In other words, the Jews, in this sense, it is in the sense in which man thinks that God can somehow be bribed and bought. You know what? I'm going to impress God, and so therefore I'm going to do the sacrifices. I'm going to keep the rituals, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make sure that on the, out, on the outside, everything that I do looks as if I'm acceptable to God But such religion is empty. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, again, we we find so many records throughout the Gospel, I just had to pick a few, but in Matthew, chapter 23, and verse 23, Jesus Christ is preaching and He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithes. So notice, they were paying the tithe. They were disobeying the Word. Ye pay tithes of men and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, these ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, 
which strain a gnat and swallow a camel, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within uh, they are full of extortion and excess. Over and over and over, Jesus Christ looked at the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Lord. He says, you have an outward show, but inside you are empty. Your religion is empty. That's where the Sanhedrin Council was. What is the first characteristic of an empty religion? It is demonstrated by an outward show without the sincerity of the heart. And by the way, most people are just like that today. And I don't mean to be critical of them, but uh, there is a sense in which they somehow think that they can bribe a holy God. I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to somehow do this, and I'm going to make sure that all my life on the outside is clean. But yet their heart is far removed from God. We have uh, people who live such a religion where they say, well, you know what, Uh, I'm going to live it up, and I'm going to go get drunk on Friday night, and look, I can just go to the confession booth the next day. That's empty religion. Do things out of tradition, motion, but their heart is far removed from God. There is no sincerity. It is just an outward show. So empty religion is demonstrated by an outward show without sincere heart. But also, secondly, empty religion is fixated on a temporal or a man-made institution and tradition. As we look at Stephen as he's preaching this message, he's bringing up the tabernacle and he's bringing up what Amos said. He says, you remember what Amos said? You offered me sacrifices in the wilderness. But were you really offering sacrifices? You're going through the motions. But you were offering nothing at all. And here he says, and this tabernacle passed on. David then built a house. And now we we have this temple where now... Standing here in this temple. But have you noticed what's happened to you? Have you forgotten the words of Solomon that says that God is not limited or does not dwell to this temple? You see what had happened to the Sanhedrin Council is they had left their worship of God to worship the temple. You remember that was the whole debate during those days. If we go with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 4. John chapter 4 gives us some insight as to the cultural circumstances of that day. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ, He is going to speak with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and He is going to reveal Himself to her as the Messiah. But in the midst of this conversation, uh, we have some insight into the mind of man during the time of Jesus Christ. In other words, what was the big issue of the day? What was the debate? What were they? What was the big struggle between those Jews and those Samaritans? First of all, this woman is shocked that a Jew is speaking to her. She says, "How? The, how are, is it that you, being a Jew, speaking to me, who am a Samaritan a woman of Samaria? You don't. The Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Why? Well, notice what the Bible says, John four. Verse 19, The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. That's a good perception. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say, now notice, the ye, he says, you Jews, ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What's the place he's referring to? The temple. Right? Old Testament tabernacle that David had desired to change and make a temple, and Solomon built the temple. That is where the Jews said, that's where God is worshipped. God is not worshipped anywhere else. Notice what Jesus said to her, verse 21. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation of the, of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him, here it says, in spirit and in truth. Now notice here, in this whole debate, notice what Jesus said. He said, there's coming a time when men are not going to worship in the mountain that you think God ought to be worshipped, nor yet is He going to be worshipped at Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus says, 
Everybody's got it wrong. Religion is not about some institution. It is not about a place. It is not about a physical location. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Empty religion is fixated on a temporal or a man-made institution or tradition. Where He says, this is the way, this is what I've built, therefore that's what I'm going to worship. And God cannot be worshipped anywhere else. That's an empty religion. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And people say, well, if this place burns down, where are you going to meet? We're going to find a place to meet. But the truth is, it's not about this building at all. As a matter of fact, there's nothing special about this building at all. We can meet anywhere. And God will be with us. Where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. That's what he said. But see, false religion or empty religion is fixated on traditions, on institutions, on buildings, and says that that is the only place where we can worship. And so they looked at Stephen and his preaching. They said, oh, he is speaking blasphemous words against this holy place. And what Stephen is showing them is that, you remember what Solomon said? God is not limited to this temple. And you think that the only place you can worship God is here. He says, you're wrong. You see, their worship was governed by its buildings and not by the Spirit of God. That's empty religion. You go and you leave a place... And that's why uh, I remember when we went to, I, I lived in France most of my life growing up, and a few times when people came from America, we took him to Notre Dame, the big Roman Catholic church. One of the biggest uh, Roman Catholic church building in the world. And uh, we went in there, <clears throat> and they have signs. They had signs on the door. You know, you cannot speak loudly. And if you had to speak, you had to whisper. And so you, they would usher you through those large doors and you would go in. And it, it, was, it was silence in there. And it, everybody would just whisper if they had to say something. And everybody walked slowly. And everybody, why? Because you were in this building. You were in this sacred place. But then as soon as you leave the doors of that place, then everybody returned to their normal conversations. And that is, I'm saying to you, that's empty religion. It's a religion that's based upon some place or some institution or some tradition. And that is not the Christianity that the Bible communicates. You see, uh, the same people who lived in an empty religion says, Well, I've lived a bad life this week, so let me go to church. And as soon as I step into this place and somehow uh, sprinkle a little bit of water on my forehead, then all, of, all the bad things I've done throughout this week will all be kind of gone. And now because I'm standing in this sacred place, somehow, now everything is fine. That's an empty religion. And the Sanhedrin council was standing there all looking up in their nose thinking, Look at this. Stephen preaching here. Does he not know that we're the leaders of the temple, the sacred, holy place? Empty religion. So empty religion is fixated on a temporal or man-made institution and tradition. Empty religion is demonstrated by an outward show without a sincere heart. But thirdly, empty religion is always identified by self-righteousness. As you look at the preaching of Peter, the preaching of Stephen, the preaching of Paul, the preaching of John the Baptist, the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly as it pertains to the religious crowd of the day, they were a self-righteous people. And a self-righteous people are part of an empty religion. You say, how can you say that? Because everybody knows that they're not righteous. Remember, it's not this the outward, it's the heart. They were doing everything outward. You remember, we just looked at the scene in Luke chapter 12 where the Pharisees, Oh God, I thank you about the wonderful person I am. And I think that sometimes people in their religion, they do the exact same thing. They go to church and they pat themselves on the back and say, Oh, well, I'm, a, I'm a great, just a great Christian. That's empty religion. 
We don't come to church because of how great we are. We come to church because of how great God is. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. But ye, we see them consume. Even the Pharisee went so far as to say in his prayer, Man, I'm so glad I'm not like this publican over here. You see, false religion is always characterized by self-righteousness. If you turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3, a good illustration of this is the Apostle Paul, by the way, who was a Pharisee before he came to a saving knowledge of Christ in Acts chapter 9. And Paul talks about all the things that in his flesh he could glory in. He says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What was that? Self-righteousness. Paul looked at his uh, resume, and he says, oh, I'm good. This is great. Look at, look at me. Look at what I've done. I've been circumcised the eighth day according to the law. I'm from Israel. And not just Israel, not just any tribe, but the tribe of Benjamin that produced the first king of Israel. And if you compare me to other Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Hebrews purebred. And as concerning the law, Guess what? A Pharisee. You know what that means, a Pharisee? That means he knew everything about the law. He could not become a Pharisee without knowing everything about the law. He's a Pharisee. He knows everything. <coughs> and in his zeal, he was so zealous that he even persecuted the church, touching the righteous which is in the law, blameless. Walking around in self-righteousness. And we say, what happened to Paul? We know what happened to Paul. He met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And you know what he recognized on that day? That all of his self-righteousness meant absolutely nothing in the sight of a holy God. And he found his religion in that moment completely empty. When facing God, he recognized, I have nothing to bring. So, if empty religion is identified by self-righteousness, and if empty religion is fixated on temporal or man-made institutions and traditions, and if empty religion is demonstrated by an outward show without a sincere heart, well, then true religion is the opposite of that. You see, true religion is not demonstrated by an outward show, but it is demonstrated by a genuine inward transformation by the Spirit of God and His quickening work in our lives. True religion is not fixated on temporal or man-made institutions and traditions. True religion is fixated on the person of God and the relationship and the fellowship that we have with Him. You know what that means? That we live the same way we act and speak in church as we do outside of church. Why? Because we are part of true religion. Not one that is concerned and fixated on places and institutions and services. But one that is the same wherever it goes. And true religion is not identified by self-righteousness. True religion is identified by those who are dependent upon His righteousness. That's what Paul said. If you're still there in Philippians chapter 3, he says, verse 9, notice, and this is where we, all the things he could boast in, and then he says, verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, that is true religion, you ready? Be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through, uh, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. 
So that's why in Romans chapter 3, it says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. So, Stephen, I believe, ends this sermon as he goes to the tabernacle in the temple and he, he reveals their emphasis on the outward, their inordinate worship of the temple, and their revolting self-righteousness because they were part of an empty religion. I remember a few years back I preached on false religions and I preached a series on message of messages on the Roman Catholic Church. And in that message I just dealt with the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church and showed that they bring in their tradition and someone who is a priest wrote me after they saw the video online and they basically said that I had misrepresented Roman Catholicism and they went on to tell me that they used to be a Baptist preacher just like me. And this is what they said in the email. You are missing something. I found all that I needed in Roman Catholicism. That's what he said. I found all that I needed in Roman Catholicism. You know what my reply was? Well, I found all that I needed in Jesus Christ. That is the difference between an empty religion and true religion. An empty religion is about places, institutions, traditions. True religion is about Jesus Christ. And Stephen is showing them, you've missed it all. The tabernacle was not about a place for you to worship. The tabernacle was a tabernacle of testimony. It was a tabernacle of witness about who? Jesus Christ. And he says, and you've missed it all. And where does that leave you? You are part now of an empty religion. And so next week, we're going to look at the conclusion that he's going to make. He's going to turn right to them, and he's going to prove them to their face for what they've done. And show them where they've gone astray, and we know where it is. It's in their heart, and he's going to talk about that. And we'll finish that next week. I hope you come back. But if you are not a born-again Christian, you can be a born-again Christian today. The Spirit of God is speaking to your heart and you recognize that you are not self-righteous and perhaps you've just been part of an empty religion. You're concerned about the outward, you're concerned about institutions, about traditions, you're concerned about your self-righteousness. I say that that is an empty religion. And Jesus Christ is the answer to that empty religion. And I pray that if you're not a born-again Christian today that you would come to a saving knowledge of Christ and turn in faith to Him. Let's pray.